Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. Join us each month to hear ideas, inspiration and practical advice from people making change through music. These conversations are hosted by me, Anita Holford of Music Education Works and Writing Services. So I'll be focusing in particular on breaking down barriers to music through communication and advocacy, but from quite a broad perspective. I really hope you'll enjoy them. And now on with the show. Hello, it's Anita here and welcome to this month's podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Paul McManus, who is Chief Executive of the Music Industries Association, the trade body for the UK musical instrument industry, and also the Chief Executive of the Music for All charity. Why I thought you'd be interested is that the MIA are very supportive of the music education sector and it feels as if there's an increasing interest from both sectors to work together more closely. The MIA has a charitable arm called Music for All, which runs initiatives like the Learn to Play Day and Make Music Day UK, and it gives grants to encourage more people to make music. It's joined the sector in campaigning, including against the EBAC, and more recently, in October 2019, they held a conference focused on music education and encouraging the industry to get more involved. So welcome, Paul, and thank you very much for making the time to talk to me today. It's great to have you here. Oh, my pleasure. Um, Before we go on to talk about your current role and how it relates to music education, can I ask a bit about you? Um, How did you end up where you are today, and why is it so important to you personally? Um, well, I, I've always been a musician ever since school, but if I'm honest, I never had the confidence to maybe try and make a career of being a musician. So I ended up in the retail sector working mainly for Marks and Spencer for 20 odd years. All right. Um, so what do you play, Paul? I'm a bass guitar player. Excellent. Okay. Various bands and things. Um, and I decided it was time to leave m and uh, The world had changed and m and wasn't what it used to be when I joined, frankly. And the only thing I was prepared to move for was to do something to do with music. And that's oh. how it all happened. Wow. So how long ago was that? 17 years ago. <laughs> Sorry, how many? 17 years 17 ago. 17 years that. ago. Wow, that's amazing. That was a big move then, but it must be amazing if you're a musician to, to be involved it was the biggest decision of my life at the time because you were leaving, you know, the relative security and, and financial security as well of, of a big company like M&S to take, uh, frankly, a pay drop to come to the music industry with all the uncertainties of something you never knew how to work, a trade body. I mean, not many people know what one is, let alone how it operates, but I, I took the gamble and it paid off, thankfully. And so that leads me on to the next question, which is what exactly does the MIA do and who are its members? What is a trade body in in this sector? What does it mean? What does it do? Um, Well, there are are thousands of trade bodies in the UK for every walk of commercial life. There's one for grave diggers, there's one for roofing felters, there's one for mortgage lenders. We are the one for the musical instrument industry. And like most trade bodies, we're a membership club. So companies in our industry that we represent pay as an annual subscription. And that's what powers the office and the small team of staff here. Um, And our members range from music shops, literally the full breadth of the UK, from Guitar Guitar in Scotland, right down to Gack in Brighton. The manufacturers of instruments ranging from Yamaha, Fender, Marshall, Stenter, all the brands you can think of. And then many allied members, such as educational establishments like the Academy yeah, of Contemporary Music in Guildford and publishers of music magazines. 
And trade bodies all do very similar things. They, they act as a corralling point for the industry in order to lobby government centrally and to put on events for the good of the industry, publish statistics, run daily newsletters and the likes of that, but generally to act as the fulcrum for the particular industry they represent. Excellent. And so what are the sort of um, member benefits that people get from being uh, part of the MIA? Um, well, you have members join for different reasons. I mean, some will join because they think it's important to have an industry trade body fighting the fight for the industry um, and just join. And, and that's wonderful. Others join because, I don't know, maybe they want to get their company more exposed generally. Um, others might join because they literally want to get money for money benefits. Um, so if they give us a tariff, they want money saving benefits in return, which is fine. So people join for a variety of reasons and, and we welcome them all. So long as they're in our little world, we can represent them. And so are some of those uh, allied members music education organisations? So yes. So organisations. Yeah, the, the corporate, uh, sorry, the um, Institute of Contemporary Music and Performance in Kilburn is, is a full-blown academy where young people go to learn degree level rock guitar and all the rest of it or Rocksteady Music Schools is a full-blown uh, educational body that teaches 30,000 young people a week to play rock instruments. Ah, so music education sort of delivery organisations can join, so a music education hub could join you, for example. Yeah, I mean, we basically take the premise that anyone that's either making an instrument, selling it, or possibly teaching it can be part of the MIA. We work on the principle, we're all better in the tent, you know, the tent analogy. So we just get as many together as we can. That's really interesting. And so you've also got a charitable wing, which I mentioned, which is the Music for All charity. How, how did that come about and how does that link to the trade body? Well, the industry is, is full of nearly everyone in our industry, no surprise, is a musician. So we all get the power of music to change people's lives for the better. And we genuinely wish everyone was able to make music. Sadly, far too many people aren't able to make music either because they can't afford lessons or an instrument or they're in a rural area where there's no teachers so we set up the charity to really put the goodwill of the industry together with donations from the public into a, into a fully registered charity that could help people that were disadvantaged in any way towards making music so any individual in the UK can apply to us for a grant towards their instrumental lessons and any community project can do the same community projects do include schools by the way which sadly we see more and more schools needing our help but we'll come on to that I'm sure and that's what the charity does. It just does nice stuff and changes people's lives for the better. Does a proportion of the membership fee go towards that charity? Is that how it works or do, do people... No, they're, they're separate bodies. Um, so the MIA is funded by the industry directly into membership subscriptions and a few other bits and bobs we do, um, like our events and things. The charity is totally funded by the general public uh, in terms of donations or events they put on. And the only other major input we have into cash is, is a foundation called the NAM Foundation, which is based in America that we are on very good oh, friends. Yes. And they've supported us for the last eight years with our charity. I know them well. That's really, really brilliant that um, UK has made links with them because they do such amazing work for advocacy for music education. Well, so. the NAM Foundation is the charitable arm of NAM, and NAM is the American equivalent of the MIA. So the MIA and NAM have a very close working relationship day in, day out anyway, um, as we do with our trade body equivalents all around the world, funnily enough. We're a very close unit, little unified industry. Oh, that makes sense. And so how, how large is the Music for All charity? 
Um, it's not very large. It's all run by volunteers from the industry. So myself and Alice and Haley in the office here, we give up time to sort of, you know, coordinate and run the charity. Its turnover isn't huge. Um, you know, we're not talking about multi-million charity, anything but we're very small. But we get a very big bang for our buck, as they say, because everyone we give a grant to, we often get support and help and discounts from the music industry itself. And the general public are extraordinarily generous. I'm sat here surrounded by a whole host of musical instruments that the general public have given us to find a new and deserving home for. So we can make our efforts and, and grants go a long way with, with relatively little income, funnily enough. Oh, that's fantastic, because I think you're a small organisation as it is, the um, MIA is, is yes. a handful of people, is that right? Well, yes, I mean, we're literally talking about 3.4 full-time equivalent that runs both organisations. Oh, wow. Oh, goodness. <laughs> They're quite busy. We have a lot of helpers and supporters from right across the industry that very generously give up time, effort, and indeed products and things to help the greater good. So we're bigger than we look, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, we, I'm sort of very aware of your work. So I think you do get a good bang for your buck in terms of communications as well. Um, so I'm really interested to hear about the Music Education Conference the other week. Can you tell me just a little bit about how that came about? Why, why you decided to put that on? Well, we, we run a very vibrant MIA education committee that meets three or four times a year and brings all sorts of partners together from right across the industry and the education sector. And we're also very plugged into the education sector. So I'm part of the Music Education Council. We're members of the MU. They're members of us. We're members of ISM. They're members of us. We're members of Music Mart. They're members of us. So we do work very closely with all the equivalent bodies in the music education sector. And we just said, you know, we often do industry conferences, but why don't we do one that brings together industry and education, particularly in these troubled times with cuts to school budgets and all the rest of it, and cuts to community budgets, to see if maybe by working together more closely, you know, we can get a lot more done. And it was as simple as that. And we were delighted with the outcome. And we had some wonderful speakers and um, a great attendance. Over 100 people came for our first one. And so what were the kind of themes and what, what were the speakers? Tell me a little bit about, about what went um, on. Well, we, we set the scene, first of all, with um, Youth Music, the organisation, who presented the highlights from their Sound of the Next Generation research, which basically shows, despite all the gloom and doom you'd suspect exist and we know about from cuts to school budgets and cuts to GCSE number take-up and all the rest of it, the number of kids accessing and making music is actually growing in totality. Because, of course, children are accessing music in ways different to maybe how we learn. So when you hear a statistic like 24% of children are teaching themselves musical instruments off the Internet, you realise the world has changed and the old model doesn't necessarily, is, is not necessarily the only model anymore. Exactly. Definitely. So we, we set the scene a little bit about, you know, the world is changing and, and forget, you know, the millennium generation. We're now on to new generations beyond those that are accessing technology and music through technology in ways, frankly, a lot of the adults, myself included some of those, haven't got a clue what they're doing, but they are making music nonetheless. And it's a good thing. So we set the scene a little bit with that and said, let's look at the new models of delivery and discuss them. So we had shots on panels that have got full-blown teaching academies on site at their shop. We had Rocksteady Music schools that, as I say earlier, are teaching 30,000 young people a week in and outside of schools. 
we had the, um, the Strings Foundation that does summer holiday camps to learn bowed instruments. And we were basically sharing with our industry, look at all these private providers, for want of a better word, that are filling the vacuum very creatively that is left by the cuts to the state situation. And that was really the theme of the whole conference, to really help our industry see there's an awful lot of music provision going on out there, but it's not necessarily how you think it's going on. Definitely. That report is absolutely fascinating from Youth Music, isn't it? Yeah, um, brilliant. I think it's been really helpful for, for a lot of different parts of the music sector. And so um, who, who else was there and who else was speaking? Well, we had um, Barbara from Making Music, the trade body that represents all the adult community music sector, you know, over 3,000 members and 200,000 individuals all making music in the adult territory outside of school and work and everything. We had Bridget, the head of Music Mark. She was there moderating a panel and talking. We had Mary Alice Stack from Creative United, who's been part of a project we've been working on to bring greater provision of musical instruments to disabled people, which we can talk about if you'd like. Mm. We had Scott Bunks, the CEO of Rocksteady Music Schools, Amy Cunningham from the Strings Club that I've mentioned. Um, we have Britain's Music there, who are now teaching 300 people above their shop in Tunbridge Wells and are now starting ensemble teaching. So the whole day was a succession of panellists, um, including, I should mention, Stephen Greenall, the governor of Warwick Music, who are the groundbreaking pioneers of the P-Bone and P-Trumpet products. Ah, right, That okay, have revolutionised yeah. young people getting access to brass instruments because the P-Bone has enabled them to do that. So it was all sorts of game changes in one way or another. We're just talking and sharing their ideas on a succession of panels that then the audience were given half the panel time to literally ask them questions. So it was a very two-way thing. Is there any um, video footage of the conference or any We've got kind of audio um, recordings of all the panels that, funnily enough, we're literally editing as we speak and we will be publishing on the newsletter um, as short quickly as we can. Lovely. Okay. So that's one for people to look out for to sign up to your newsletter. So what were your kind of key takeaways from the conference and were there any um, sort of actions agreed at the end of it? I think there was a number of themes came out of it. I mean, one was without being unkind in any way, do not wait for or rely on the government to provide a child's music education. And whilst it is good, I don't know if you've heard the news this morning, that the music hubs have got renewed funding. Beyond I have, yeah, rent. great news. Oh, that's all you could expect, really, isn't it, at this time? Well, yeah, and of course, it's not at the level it used to be, and the English Baccalaureate is still penalising schools for even daring to teach the art and all the rest of it. So I think the theme of the conference was very much, look, we need to take a greater hand and responsibility for overseeing and getting involved in particularly children's music education, but that also we should look at the opportunities in the market, the ageing population being a good example. You know, we're going to have one in four people in the next 50 years will be over 65. Yeah. <laughs> Are we thinking about their musical wants and needs, particularly as each successive generation does more and more exciting stuff the older they get, it appears. Yeah. So it, it wasn't just about the young. And we, we deliberately didn't go on and on about cuts and problems. We didn't want to talk about any of that. We wanted to talk yeah. about the opportunities instead for young and old. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's where innovation comes from, isn't it? And really being future-facing. Are you planning to run another conference? 
Well, it was our first one and it went so well and we took a lot of feedback that we decided we'll make it an annual event, frankly. It's really, really great to hear. Come to the next one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I'm sure a lot of listeners would be really curious about that and want to come. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. So how do you think that the musical instrument industry and music education organisations can work together more closely to help more young people get involved in music making? Well, I mean, we, we inevitably touched on the National Plan for Music Education and, you know, the frank reality that the communication that was supposed to come from the hubs is varied. You know, I have some music shops that have never heard from their local hubs since it was established, others that went to the inaugural meeting and that was the last involvement they had. Other shops, you know, haven't frankly made the effort to get involved with their local music service or music hub. Uh, we've got manufacturers and distributors dotted all around the country and we, the, the event was as much to sort of say, look, why don't you just talk to each other, get to know each other yeah. and see what comes out of it. So it, a, ta- a shared taxi, this is a true story, had one of our distributors in it and an educator who just happened to share a taxi to get to this place. And by the time they got out of the taxi, they both agreed to work with each other. Oh, that's amazing. Not, just getting people not in rocket science, just facilitating yeah. people meeting and understanding what each other does. Dispelling the old, you know, rather polarised views that, industry must be just trying to sell me more instruments and you know educators are just trying to bash down a better deal with me sort of thing it (laughs) goes far far deeper and wider than that as you'll know well when you meet people and really see them as people we're in a professional environment but actually see them as people i think most people who work in this sector are just really genuinely passionate about other people making music as well and benefiting from it aren't they so there isn't really that much difference when you get down to the people level it's always the irony when I, I go to any music education events is that you think, well, God, we all want the same thing. But my goodness me, we've all got such a different view about how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And the difficulty is that people kind of operate in silos. Inevitably, we all do yeah. it, don't we? Kind of, you know, have blinkers on sometimes. So I suppose one of the messages from coming out of the conference is simply opening opening yourselves up to hearing from different people who you might not expect might be able to help. Because I think in the funded sector, as well as in the sort of music service, music education sector within that, Mm. um, they're very, very focused on the concerns about having to deliver on the national plan, deliver the core extension roles. And sometimes I think that probably prevents people from looking wider. For example, looking at their local music shop, I know that you know, your Learn to Play Day is a brilliant opportunity for music education. And I'm sure that could really expand and, and more people get, could get involved in that. Yeah, um, it's, it's a tricky one. And I do feel for the hub leaders sometimes in that many of them, you know, simply rose through the ranks of the old music service, having started off as a music teacher. And all of a sudden they were charged with being this fulcrum of the whole entire music community you know charities businesses anything to do with music in I don't know let's say West Sussex and one thing I never saw was appropriate training to help them suddenly develop from often what was a a very good music teacher and coordinator into a business person that was trying to get sponsorship from the local community and develop all these cool relationships and you know some of them you know I suspect have really struggled to do any more than just running the day job of the music service 
Yeah, definitely. I think there's been some training via um, Music Mart now, some leadership yes. training that's been going yes, for a few years now, which apparently is really amazing. And also people are just sort of growing and learning as, as hubs have grown now. Mm. Um, so the sector has definitely changed and is, is more kind of outward looking. So anything else that you think would help in terms of music education? Well, I, I think for us as an industry, you know, like I touched on a minute ago, we have to look at every living human being as a potential customer. And we have enough of a trouble making our businesses attractive to women sometimes, let alone people from an ethnic background or people from a disability background or pensioners. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think this, this was the resounding message that, you know, the, the youth as a percentage of the total population are decreasing. But the old, as a percentage of the population, are increasing. So whilst we always rightly have a major priority towards teaching our young to become music makers, we should have an equal prevalence towards now the ageing population because they are the dominant part of the population going forward. The hubs now are looking beyond those 5 to 18 the age groups that are in the national plan. A lot of hubs work in early years anyway. Some hubs are looking at adults now as well. Well, and um, adults, you know, frankly, often are best placed to be able to afford music provision. So if you take Bromley Youth Music Trust, the Bromley Hub, you know, I know they do evening clubs for old, old buggers like me sort of thing to go along and learn rock instruments again or piano or what have you. Now, you know, that, that is income directly into the music service um, and, a, and a useful service in itself for the population it's supposed to serve, as well as the kids. So I just think it makes common sense on many levels as much as anything else. There actually aren't many adult music making groups, apart from the kind of traditional things like choirs and things like that. Correct. I think there's loads of people who've learned instruments in the past, given up when they've had a family or had a job or whatever, and actually kind of get to that age when you think well I'd like to do that again I'd like to play music with other people but who would I who would I make music with now so I'm sure there's potential there yeah you're absolutely right and and Barbara at making music would say to you yes the vast majority of her members will tell them to be choirs and maybe ensembles and amateur orchestras yes not yeah. so many rock clubs I mean we ran a scheme a few years ago called weekend warriors that was literally designed to get aging rock musicians <laughs> to get the guitars out from under the bed and get back into a programme that put them back in a band with a gig at the end of it sort of thing. And we're Brilliant. looking at whether that needs rebooting because uh, it, it could be even more of its time now. It's an American scheme that NAM pioneered, funnily enough, for mentioning oh, NAM earlier. Right. And uh, we, we brought it over here a few years ago, but I've, I've got it on my pad. It, it must be time for a reboot. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really interesting. Maybe in partnership with Hubs? Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, it, it shouldn't always be shops. I mean, it should be anyone. As Learn to Play Day, I mean, about half our venues for Learn to Play Day, yes, might be music shops and music rehearsal rooms and studios, but the other half are music educational establishments of one shape or another. And that's fine with us. So can you tell me a little bit more about Learn to Play Day and also um, Making Music? day i think yeah. the one that's in june um well learn to play day we've been running for eight to nine years now and it literally started off with one shop doing a learn to play day weekend when we just put a few music teachers in it and gave the general public free taster lessons great and idea we had 200 people turned up on the day something and we were like my goodness all these people just needed a very simple easy way to engage with music but they wouldn't have walked into that shop otherwise on a saturday yeah so from that, we, we just tried to make it a nationwide annual gig, and that's what it is now. And Alice, my uh, right-hand lady, runs the whole thing now. And, I mean, she's already got 40, 40 venues signed up for next March already sort of thing, because people love doing it. 
for music businesses like shops, surprise, surprise, they suddenly find they've got a whole bunch of new customers. <laughs> but for music hubs, I mean, back to Bromley, Bromley Youth Music Trust got the Grenadier Guards down for Learn to Play Day this year, and they had 200 families all turned up, all signing up then for lessons, not just the kids, but the adults as well. It's a great hook to hang stuff on, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, often with marketing campaigns, you know, you're looking for a hook to hang a campaign on sometimes, and to have something that's a particular day, particular time, it's a brilliant opportunity for music services and music education hubs and community music organisations. Yeah, we think so. And um, I say we just run it every year. And we know that between a sort of a fifth and a quarter of the people that come on the day do something as a result of the day. They either sign up for some lessons or they go and buy an instrument or they get out their old instrument. It's just a direct incentive to do something with your music again or for the first time. So the Make Music Day, that's a different thing that's a global event that takes place always on june the 21st so next year it's on a sunday and it happens in about 120 countries all on this day and basically the idea is that the world of music making just comes out into the streets and just plays some music to inspire and entertain people so you know we had um over a thousand events took place in the UK this year, literally from Scotland down to the South Coast. There was bands, there was choirs, there was ukulele groups. It can be anything. And it's just, it's just free and there's no money changing hands, but it's just musicians just coming out and performing, schools as well, just entertaining the general public as, as a, again, a call to arms sort of thing. So do you think there's anything more that the music education sector and your own sector could do to build on that, really? Joint campaigning even that... Yeah. Well, campaigns, I mean, we work on certainly, you know, with the DFE on, on the campaigning to keep music provided for, and we work with the DCMS as well, and all, all the people you'd expect. The baccalaureate campaign is obviously a very live and active one that we've supported the ISM who started it from the very first time sort of thing. But I think a lot of this is about the general public knowing what's out there sometimes. There's a heck of a lot of great stuff going on in terms of music provision throughout the country, but if you said to the average mum or dad, do you know what's going on at your local music service? You can imagine the answer. You know, what's that? So I think there's a huge amount to be done. And, you know, and if you're talking about visions, what if there was a one-stop portal where, you know, I want to learn a musical instrument and you could find everything in your area sort of thing or something like that or more weekend promotions of music services in the local shopping centre or what have you or more summer holiday camps like the Amy, you know, the Strings one I mentioned earlier so that all the kids who are off for the seven weeks you know mum and dad could dump them and get them learning an instrument for a week or something <laughs> like that there's so much you can be done but it needs people working together and seeing the opportunities you know rocksteady music schools is a great example of a little organization it's now big seeing the opportunity that many many thousands of kids wanted to learn rock instruments but weren't given the opportunity through either their school provision or curriculum or what have you and they're teaching 30,000 kids a week it's staggering their expansion has been incredible, hasn't it? They're a really brilliant organisation and they've done some interesting things like the Foo Fighters Day the, yeah. last year. Wonderful. That was amazing. I mean, Scott yeah. Bucks, if you ever get the chance to interview him, is inspirational, as indeed is Stephen Green of Warwick Music, because they just get the fact that 
don't wait for somebody else to make this happen. Do something yourself and take, take charge of our destiny, of our music-making generation. <laughs> Absolutely. So I just wanted to move on to something that you touched on earlier about, um, particularly from the work of youth music and its partners, we know that there are many young people who are simply missing out, not because their parents don't know about the opportunities available, but actually because of who they are, where they live, yeah. what they're going through, or simply the lack of diversity of opportunities. So do you think that the MAIA and its members could help to promote a more inclusive music and music education sector and do you have any thoughts on how that could work? Well I mean I, I need to flip between the MIA and music for all here because as I said earlier any individual in the UK can apply to us for a grant when they can't afford their instrument or lessons and you know we help hundreds every year and I have to be honest you know most of them are from disadvantaged backgrounds so we have something very tangible on the ground that does all it can for that. Strategically, yes, uh, no, no child should not have access to music making, but we're in the world we're in, which is why, you know, in many ways, our charity shouldn't need to exist, but it does. Organisations like Youth Music are exemplary in what they do on the ground to support children, um, right through to people like Jinx that runs Music Fusion in Portsmouth, that is a, a music group that takes some of the most disadvantaged kids off the streets of Portsmouth and brings them into a music making environment that it, for many of them is literally the highlight of their week. So as always, there's some brilliant stuff going on out there by many, many, many organisations. And we just try and do our bit as an industry to help as many we can, chiefly through the charity, which say the industry fully supports. And I have instruments donated here from manufacturers that they say, find some kids that want these guitars and get them to them. And that's what we do. There was a question on Twitter from Dr. Martin Fortley, which is kind of similar to what I've just asked you. Um, Martin is a professor of education at Birmingham City University, but I suppose he's looking at more how the industry might adapt in terms of actually adapted instruments for children. So he's asked, how is the industry responding to the drive towards inclusion for all youngsters in music education? How are they coping with the requirements of differentiated access for, say, whole class ensemble tuition, as discussed recently with the OMI Trust, which is the one-handed musical instrument trust i think but i think they, they've expanded to sort of wider groups of young people who aren't accessing music because they can't use traditional instruments and that there are other organizations who are doing amazing work in this sector like um, drake music but the yeah body for this whole project is an organization called creative united that i've worked with the leader of creative united for over 12 years now mary alice stack and ah. He put together a whole research project trying to establish how many young people were not able to make music because they couldn't have instruments that were suited to their various needs and abilities. So um, Drake Music, who, by the way, Music for All have given two grants to over the years, and the One-Handed Musical Instrument Trust, who, by the way, Music for All have given two grants to over the years, oh, brilliant. all work together because we all know each other. Great. And a pilot is currently taking place in Nottingham Music Service Area. Oh, whereby okay. a research project was established as to how many children there were that would be making music if only we could find some adapted instruments. So you'll be delighted to hear that Music for All, specially adapted as part of this project, six acoustic guitars, 12 mouthpieces and a number of headphones and things, and they all went to these schools in Nottingham where children are now making music with adapted instruments that would not otherwise be doing it. And so is so that we're in the thick of it as we speak. Yeah, that's really interesting. Where could people find out more about that? Um, well, Creative United are, are the custodians of the research. Um, right. Which, you know, will I will tell you that some like fourteen percent of the population are identified as disabled in one way or another. Back yeah. to 
opportunities for our industry, let alone the educators. And Mary Alistak is the contact to Creative United, and I say um, the pilot is literally happening as we speak in the Nottinghamshire Music Service. Oh, that's really great. So presumably there's a sort of aspiration to roll that out further. Yes, I mean, this is literally just a pilot. Um, and if successful and these children are able to become musicians, then our industry has already met with Mary Alistak to talk about the types of instruments that might need to be considered if we can find ways to mass produce adapted ones obviously a, a one-handed musical instrument is a very expensive thing to do as you can imagine yeah but you know the rewards for doing it if a cost-effective way can be found to deliver it are enormous to yeah. the change that makes people's lives there's a big you know movement in music education spearheaded by youth music called the alliance for musically inclusive england and if you haven't heard about yep. it already you will do soon no 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 um, we, we yeah. all know what up to. <laughs> Brilliant, that's good stuff. So I think there's a lot of change happening at the moment, yes. particularly around social model of disability and just sort of saying it's not on that kids can't access music simply because of the instruments no. or the structures etc. I mean et we, so. we see no barriers on this so I'll give you a real example. We bought a sound beam for a young disabled lad about a year ago who all he can do is move his head. Our charity bought him a sound beam that enables him to trigger apps that make musical sounds. So he is a musician because of the sound beam. So that's the extent we're prepared to go to as a charity. We, we make no delineation between age, gender, background, ability. It doesn't matter to us. Everyone is a potential music maker. So another question from Twitter is from Jimmy Rotherham, who I probably heard of him. He's the Bradford primary oh, school teacher. Him. Yeah, who is in yeah. the news about the transformation of his school through music. And he asks, has the industry seen any drop off as a result of declining numbers at GCSE and A-level and the current existential crisis music? faces in many primary schools are people still buying as many instruments that's a really interesting question well the short answer is yes they are okay. this is back to that youth music research which I say is the, is the clue yeah. <laughs> more kids than ever are making music and therefore you know while some of it now might be software music or whatever we represent the full breadth of musical products from PA systems to technology products through to raw instruments and the overall picture is still remarkably consistent I mean, we haven't dropped off in the last few years at all we are still moving forward and when you look in terms of volumes because the price for products continues to drop particularly anything with electronica in it you know if you yeah. look at the price of a digital piano today compared to 15 years ago you wouldn't believe it's the same product but it's better so the volumes of instruments are increasing the sterling level of the industry is fairly consistent but the volumes underneath the sterling are increasing because the price of products continually keep reducing that's good news. That's good so news. It, it is good news. It, you know, it obviously means um, as prices continue to drop, you know, it gets harder and harder to make a living out of selling product in many cases. Mm. Uh, but no, I mean, in totality, we're in relatively good health. Kind of brings us around to the, what we talked about at the beginning and the whole point of the music education sector and the music instrument sector working together is that the more that we can work together to get more people making music more it helps everybody helps the sectors both sectors well, survive it, and thrive it helps the sector it helps you know the more people you have making music it makes for a better community it makes for a better school it makes for a better world i'm convinced we'd have less world wars if everyone was playing an instrument <laughs> it's all good stuff and i think as an industry we just have to a look at new partnerships and secondly look at the whole breadth of opportunity of who might want to become a music maker compared to the old models about, yeah, it's just kids or whatever. No, 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 it's well beyond that.
Yeah, really interesting. And actually the music education sector organization, Music Mark, their conference in a few weeks time is about partnership. Really Absolutely. interesting. So finally, can you give us three pieces of practical advice or three calls to action for people working in music education who are listening and are wondering how the MIA and the organizations that you represent could, could benefit the young people they work with? Well, if you want to know more about the MIA or to make contact with any of our members, our website is very transparent with all our members and contact details on. But, you know, they are very welcome to just call me up for a chat or Alice and just talk about what they're trying to do. And we'll put them together with the right person. I mean, one of the things a trade body does is it's here to facilitate. So very happy to talk to any educators out there that they think might want to get involved. Equally, if any of them think they need to talk to us about the charity and any plans they've got and whether it might be suitable for a grant from ourselves or just a general working partnership, they've only got to pick up the phone or, or drop us an email to the charity. Um, and the other one is, you know, just generally, we're nice people in our little industry. We all want the same thing and we just want to work with anyone. So, you know, just don't be afraid. Just try something. I mean, we had Charlie Richardson, the new head of uh, Lewisham Music Service at our conference the other day. And he was great. And he's probably met loads of people in our industry that will give him some help to help him do what he's trying to do out there. It's been so interesting talking to you, Paul. Thanks so much for coming on. If you do want to read more about the MIA, I'll share the link to their website and other links in the show notes. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you. That's the end of our show this time. Thank you for listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast and make sure to subscribe so that you get to hear about future episodes. If you'd like to be on the podcast or you'd like to know more about me and how I help music and creative organisations through communications, then visit writing-services.co.uk and get in touch. Thanks for listening and have a great week.